Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels and the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And it is Tuesday, October 25th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and our topic is, would you take a drug that worsens sexual dysfunction, contributes to dementia, increases crime, and doubles the rate of suicide? Would you do it? So tonight, I'm going to review the evidence surrounding uh, this situation, and uh, you can decide. Not only would you take it, but just how far are you willing to go? Would you drive someone to a doctor's appointment where such a thing would be prescribed? Would you go to the pharmacy to fill a prescription for someone if one of these drugs was on that prescription? Would you hand this pill to someone every day? Just how far would you go? How involved would you be? once you knew that these were the consequences. So I'm not saying there's any right and wrong answers. No, no, no judgment, no judgment, just saying. So what drugs are these? Actually, it's a whole class of drugs. These are antidepressants. Yes, antidepressants. SSRI, these are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. But don't take my word for it. Nope, nope, nope. Let's take a look at the medical authorities. See what they say. And this is in your doctor's uh, inbox on October 20th, 2016. And it says, antidepressants worsen sexual dysfunction and depression. Holy cow. And so currently available antidepressants may aggravate sexual dysfunction. And just in case you don't know what this is, this means that guys can't get an erection, not interested in sex, Ladies, not interested in sex. So that means this is, <laughs> you want to ruin a relationship, this is the drug. Okay, so survey, the use of survey is a study, is a new window into the lives of those trying to manage and live with major depressive disorder and paints a comprehensive picture of the consequences of antidepressant treatments that don't also address sexual dysfunction. Hmm. 
So about 1,000 U.S. adults currently receiving antidepressant drug therapy participated in the sexual symptoms and side effects in depression survey. Now, you need to understand this number, 1,000. You might think, oh, Dr. Downs, that's only 1,000 people. But as a practicing physician, drug reps came to my office and presented me with data based on a study of fewer than 10 people and expected me to prescribe an antidepressant based on this compelling evidence obtained from a study of 10 people. So this 1,000 might not seem like a big number to you, but it's a much larger number than a lot of uh, drug companies use in order to get their drugs approved by the FDA. And I was just floored at the time. I couldn't believe it. Like, I can't believe the FDA approved a drug based on a study of like less than 10 people. I asked the drug rep, could you repeat this? Are you sure? Is this the study? Is there another study? Amazing. Okay, so this, this 1,000 U.S. adults is actually a, a darn big number when you're talking about looking at antidepressants because, well, most of them don't look at them. So the vast majority, 88%, reported a loss of sexual desire, satisfaction, or sexual function. 88%. What better way to neuter a population? And more than two-thirds first experienced sexual problems as a symptom of their depression, and 17% first experienced sexual problems only after starting antidepressants. Well, let's just say the antidepressants really didn't help. So 17% uh, developed sexual problems after they started the antidepressant. And 68% had some already. So the one can say substantially that the antidepressants made things worse. All right. Of those reporting sexual dysfunction, more than half saw no improvement or suffered further decline in sexual function since starting their current antidepressant treatment. Nearly three-fourths of those with sexual dysfunction reported that it made the depression worse. Okay. So this drug then, it's being marketed as an antidepressant, is worsening not only depression, but worsening sexual dysfunction. The survey is conducted by independent market research consultancy, Wakefield Research, and was commissioned by Faber-Kramer Pharmaceuticals. The developer of... Uh, of an antidepressant, of all things. Developer of an extended release of still experimental and somewhat controversial antidepressant that has a unique mechanism of action that may avert the sexual side effects of currently available antidepressants, such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Okay, so, in other words, we have a conflict of interest here. So the study was commissioned by a company that's launching a drug that's not a SSRI, that it hopes will compete with the SSRI. Now, this in medicine is often the only way that uh, deficiencies or harm in a drug is ever revealed, is when either a competitor launches a study to substantiate the introduction of a new drug, or a drug company, knowing the drug is going off patent, is planning to release a replacement. So, almost never is 
negative information about drugs released unless and until there is a more profitable replacement in the wings. But that's okay. I think it's better to have the information than not, number one. Number two, you're not compelled to accept the replacement in the wings. Okay. So sexual side effects of antidepressants are a significant concern to many patients. Now, the amazing thing about this, of course, is that um, in medical school, we were trained, I was trained, that sexual interest on the part of a patient is to be treated as something trivial. And you let the patient know that they should not be obsessed or even concerned about sex, and they should get on with uh, the more important things in life, like maybe having a job or uh, anything else. But sex, eh. And so now, all of a sudden, this is uh, 2016, there is uh, interest in this. Now, of course, obviously, there's interest in it because we have many drugs that address it. So all of a sudden, it's a legitimate concern. Okay, there have been any number of studies now showing that SSRIs can contribute to significant dysfunction in multiple areas, including desire, arousal, and orgasmic function. Now, that's a real killer. It, it hits your sexual desire on one, two, three levels. That's, uh, that's pretty, pretty potent. And so uh, this new drug, of course, doesn't seem to have those effects, but that's not what we're uh, looking at here. We're looking at the SSRIs, the ones that are you know, presently available. Okay. So the company, uh, so this drug they're trying to introduce to substitute for the SSRIs, by the way, uh, was denied approval 9 to 4 by the FDA, concluding its available data did not support its approval. Which is shocking when you think that they approved a drug, numerous drugs, SSRIs, uh, that obviously worsened depression. And for them to reject an antidepressant just because the available data did not support its approval, I mean, it's pretty flimsy reasoning when you look at what they've already approved. Just so we clarify what we're talking about here. An SSRI is Celexa, Lexapro, Paxil, Prozac, Luvox, and Zoloft. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good lineup there. And um, the generic names are Citalopram, Escritalopram, Paroxetine, Fluoxetine, Fluvox, Fluvoxamine and sertraline. And one, two, three, four of these drugs were available back when I was practicing in the 90s. So if half of all medicine is found to be false every four years, you can see the likelihood of any of these drugs being effective uh, in 2016 is pretty darn low. Okay, so, so the company appealed the, the decision. It's, it's not, uh, this drug is not dead yet. They're still trying to uh, get it approved. There remains a significant lack of evidence that, G, that this new drug performs well in the treatment of major depressive disorder. And so for, uh, the FDA is being pretty harsh with these guys. 
It says, furthermore, reduced risk of sexual dysfunction in light of ineffective treatment are irrelevant. Okay, so remember, in light of ineffective treatment, so we're going to um, take a look later on down the road here and see what is uh, ineffective. Okay, so the big deal here is there's incontrovertible evidence that antidepressants, SSRIs, do indeed worsen sexual dysfunction as well as depression. So you would think that that would be bad enough, but no. Now we find that SSRIs, again, this is Medscape. This is something that's emailed to all your doctors in their inbox. This is October 14, 2016, so fresh hot, hot off the press. SSRIs disrupt sleep in the elderly, may contribute to dementia. Right, may contribute to dementia. Hmm. So antidepressants, especially serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, can significantly disrupt sleep architecture in elderly patients and may contribute to early signs of neurodegeneration that can progress to dementia, new research shows. Now, just by the way, this is why dementia is so, 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 so difficult to uh, reverse. Because if the dementia is being caused by drugs that you're taking and you're continuing to take those drugs, then obviously you're not going to have much of an effect on the dementia. So what we have here is a possible um, culprit uh, in the big explosion of dementia. And when you follow the explosion of just medication use, whether it's uh, adult vaccinations, um, antidepressants, uh, we, we see that you know this, this, is, this is a real serious issue. So we take into account other side effects of antidepressants, including weight gain, sexual side effects, but we are less concerned about sleep, especially when we use SSRIs. Um, said Dr. Dr. Tahir, he's a doctor, psychiatrist, psychiatry resident at SUNY Upstate Medical University, Syracuse, New York. That's where I'm from, Syracuse, New York. So this doctor uh, is taking this position on SSRIs. But SSRIs increase sleep latency. That means the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep in the elderly and decreases REM sleep. That means quality sleep and are associated with REM sleep behavioral disorders, including nightmares. And so he says we should be careful about using SSRIs in the elderly population. Careful, careful. <laughs> careful about using SSRIs in the elderly population. How about, like, not using them at all? Okay, so you can see this is a, a true doctor speaking. Or I should say a licensed doctor is trying to keep his license. study was presented here at the Institute of Psychiatric Services uh, 2016 conference, and he used a literature review. And more and more studies now are taking the form of literature reviews, where the author will simply review other articles previously written, and then you know put today's date and time stamp on it. But I mean that's okay. It's just to let you know what uh, what the process is. So studies include systemic systemic reviews, retrospective studies, and prospective studies. And patients had to be at least 50 years of age and receiving an antidepressant, largely an SSRI, for the treatment of depression. And the analysis revealed that not only did SSRIs, in particular, change sleep architecture in older patients, they also appeared to increase the risk that have behavioral disorders, REM behavioral disorders like nightmares. 
And um, unfortunately, there's little evidence, evidence to support the use of any treatment other than SSRIs for depression in the elderly. So in other words, we know, this is what he's saying, this is the English translation, we know all the other antidepressant treatments in the elderly are just not effective, but the SSRIs appear to be the most effective. Okay, and I want you to, you know, put that up here in your thinking cap because we're going to come back to that. We're going to revisit that. We've got some more research articles to look at tonight, about four of them. So, tricyclic antidepressants and monoamine oxidase inhibitors are associated with too many side effects and are generally not used in older patients. And they're also, nowadays, used less and less even in younger patients. Now, the tricyclic antidepressants are being used uh, for chronic pain and for headaches in patients of all ages. But the tricyclics, because um, when you take a tricyclic antidepressant, you add that with Benadryl, you basically have a lethal combination. So I know now as a medical practice, we just have way too many overdoses and drug interactions with tricyclic antidepressants, and I just didn't prescribe them. Benzodiazepines, read Valium, in turn are associated with an increased risk for falls, and again, inappropriate for use in the elderly. A lot of big business here for hip replacements. Um, so patients, psychiatrists should screen their elderly patients for any signs and symptoms of neurodegenerative disorders. <clears throat> In other words, dementia. And so he says they should screen for them, and if SSRI is prescribed, ask detailed questions about sleep, quality, and on all the follow-up uh, visits. So we have this, this drug. Okay, so we know it causes, it worsens depression, it causes sexual dysfunction. Now we find it causes dementia in the elderly. So do we stop prescribing it to the elderly? Heck no. Go ahead and prescribe it, but just, you know, when you follow up visits, just kind of ask people some questions. All right. And so in the elderly, the, the uh, antidepressant doses should be maximum, half the dose, prescribed in younger patients. That's interesting. Now, back, when I, back in the old days, uh, this was not the case. We used, as we say, adult doses for adults. As for the possible association between SSRIs and neurodegenerative disease, another doctor, Dr. Yellowlees, also noted that SSRIs are not necessarily causative, just associated. So it may be simply that in the early stages of these diseases, depression and agitation are more common. And hence, antidepressants are more commonly prescribed, he noted. So in other words, depression may be an early sign of dementia. And so the same way that these drugs don't reverse depression, they're not going to reverse the person's slide into, uh, into dementia. Okay. And so the jury is definitely out on the connection between degenerative disorders and medications. Now, that is outrageous. This is just an outrageous contention. So uh, many um, medications cause degenerative disorders. In other words, cause uh, mental problems, emotional problems, degenerative problems like arthritis, for example. So there's a long history. One that comes to mind is prednisone. Prednisone causes uh, depression, causes degeneration of the, of the bones, of the eyes, of the liver. 
So there's a long history of medications that cause degenerative disorders, neurological and otherwise. And so this doctor is pretending that he is totally not aware of that. But he's a psychiatrist, so I guess we can forgive him. And he says there's not a cause and effect link, but there does seem to be an association. And so we have this other piece of information. So these drugs now, you know, this is established, straightforward, you know, straight from the horse's mouth here, Medscape.com, pro-doctor literature, that these drugs are causing sexual dysfunction, they're worsening depression, and now they definitely disrupt sleep in the elderly, and they are definitely associated with dementia. Is there anything else? Suicidality and aggression during antidepressant treatment. So, these drugs, SSRIs, I'm sticking into SSRIs here. Um, what they did was they did double-blind placebo-controlled trials containing patient narratives or individual patient listings of harm. So they, they did a review of these. And they included 70 trials, um, clinical study reports with 18,526 patients. That's a pretty good number. And what did they find? They found that for adults, there did not seem to be any change that they could point to in, in the probability of suicide and aggression. And that's important. It's not any change, which means the drug is ineffective in preventing suicide. So it's got to be clear. But what about when we take a look at um, adolescents? Well, for children and adolescents, as people uh, 19 and under, as a teenager, they were 1.3 times to 4.3 times more likely, uh, you know, to have suicidal uh, thoughts and even uh, death. So this is uh, this is shocking. So anywhere from four 4.3 times as much to 4.8 times as much, or even 9.65 times as much. Uh, and this is the probability of death, suicide, uh, and this is, this is shocking, <laughs> that, that you can even um, you know, sell something like this, and aggression. So death, suicide, and aggression. So if, if you have a child or adolescent, and he's on these drugs, he's as much as 4.3 times more likely to die, as much as 4.8 times more likely to commit suicide, and as much as 9.6 times more likely to become violent. That's huge. And the conclusion, because of the shortcomings identified and having only partial access to the appendices or notes in these studies with no access to case report forms, the harms, in other words, the death, suicide, and violence, could not be estimated accurately. In adults, there is no significant increase for all outcomes. But in children and adolescents, the risk of suicidal behavior and aggression at least doubled. This is, this is shocking. And so, of course, the kids are taking these drugs, right? Uh, SSRI, serotonin, uh, selective serotonin reptic inhibitors, are being used for kids for things like ADHD. 
I mean, just this is amazing. And when I was laid doctor at the juvenile detention center, um, kids would come in on these drugs, and I just routinely stopped all the drugs, stopped all the drugs, gave the kid a pep talk about good behavior and uh, how a diet could affect what's going on. And literally, these kids went from drinking soda pops to drinking water. And they voluntarily cleaned up their diet by actually selecting healthier foods. And what we found was the rate of aggression at the detention center went to zero. We usually could count on at least one um, broken uh, hand every, every two weeks and altercations, uh, fights, that would be fights, daily. And once we stopped all these drugs and suggested the kids drink water and eat more vegetables, there were zero fights and zero uh, broken bones. One kid broke his bone because he tripped. But we had no broken bones due to uh, kids punching, beating each other. Um, the kids didn't hit the guards. So we had no more workers' comp claims. It was amazing. Coming to work was an incredible pleasure just because uh, we stopped these drugs. It was awesome. So what else is there about SSRIs? <laughs> All right. This one, this is September 24, 2015. It's a little bit old, but no less valid. SSRIs linked to violent crime in young people. Uh, and this is very interesting that um, when I work at the detention center, many of these kids have been diagnosed as ADHD, put on these SSRIs and other drugs. And then, of course, they committed crimes and they got into the juvenile justice system, which is how I encountered them. And so um, the parents were so snowed so believing that the parents refused to even consider the possibility that these drugs could be linked to their child's uh, violent behavior. And when I would stop the drugs, I would get a barrage of brutally abusive phone calls from the parents and from the prescribing doctor. The prescribing doctors usually were not nearly as vitrolic, that means uh, energetically abusive, as the parents were. The parents were absolutely terrified that if Johnny was off his uh, doctor-prescribed, other doctor-prescribed uh, medicines, then he would just, something horrible would happen. I'd always tell the parents, now, don't you worry. We have guards. They're armed, and they can handle Johnny. Johnny's not going to be a problem. And um, without fail, without exception, um, the kids settled down, and they just behaved so nicely and just such sweet uh, people. You would never believe they could have committed the um, atrocious acts of which they were they were accused, and I'm not saying they were innocent. What I am saying is they were obviously under the influence of drugs, the very drugs the doctors were prescribing. So the use of these uh, SSRIs is associated with a significantly increased risk for violent crimes among adolescents and young adults. New research shows, and so Swedish researchers examined data from 850,000 individuals and found SSRIs use was linked to a 43% increased risk for violent crime among people aged 15 to 24 years. The association was not significant in older individuals. This is, this is huge. And so this is basically a 43% increase. And what we're looking at here is incarceration rates and encounters with the, uh, with the law. You know, just stopping these drugs could make the job of many policemen a heck of a lot safer. Can imagine 
uh, not being called to all these uh, violent disputes. So if our findings related to young people are validated in other designs, samples, and settings, warnings about an increased risk of violent behaviors while being treated with SSRIs may be needed, (laughs) Uh, said the uh, psychiatrist at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. And so any such changes to the advice given to young persons prescribed SSRIs will need to be carefully considered as the public health benefit from decreases in violence following restrictions in SSRI use may be countered by increases in other adverse outcomes, such as more disability, rehospitalization, or suicides. Now, we know that SSRIs increase suicide in young people. We just found that out from the prior article, okay? So we don't don't have that, that concern here. But again, this is the, the, the chatter and actual nonsense that I was met with when I stopped these drugs in the uh, young people at the detention center. And it was just such a, an immediate change. It's like turning on a light switch. Boom. All of a sudden, all the kids were charming, nice, well-behaved, and there were no fights or arguments. So that it, it took up until 2015 and someone in Sweden had to look at 850,000 people is uh, it's unfortunate that they had to wait uh, basically 20 years um, to determine what was really just right in front of any doctor who is, who is paying attention. And in my case, I mean, I had a very nice situation. These kids were incarcerated. Uh, they were under 24-7 lock and key so stopping the drugs was not a high-risk proposition. But once I did stop the drugs and saw the incredible improvement in these children, I, I stopped using antidepressants in my medical practice. I just absolutely stopped because there could be no justification for putting anyone through this. And so what you're saying is the authors highlight the fact that a number of factors may explain the increased risk for violent crime with SSRI use in younger people aside from the medication. So they're looking for other reasons. But again, uh, I had a confined prison population. We stopped the drugs, and the violence evaporated, just evaporated. And the kids were so supportive of each other, encouraging each other. You know, a kid was on his way off to court, and the other kids would say, good luck, good luck, hope everything goes well. And, you know, it was just incredible how supportive they were of each other. So um, this study confirms basically the obvious that anyone working with uh, large groups of teenagers and these drugs can see, which is you start these drugs and the kids' violent behavior just escalates. And when I was talking with uh, parents and they would say, he's got to take those drugs. I said, whoa, if the drugs were working, he wouldn't be here in the detention center. So just chill. Remember the guards are armed and Johnny's not going to hurt anybody. We're okay here. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times it would take, uh, you know, be a week or two for the parents to come around and say, hey, you know, John, Johnny's a pretty, pretty good kid. But unfortunately, in the United States, this matter is complicated because if your child is put on SSRIs, antidepressants, ADHD drugs, then many parents actually get a supplemental check from the government and the kid is declared to be disabled. And also the school gets increased um, per day payment from the government when a child is on these drugs. So there's a tremendous conflict of interest from all the adults 
who are surrounding um, this unfortunate child who's being driven to violence by these dangerous drugs. But let's see what else there is about SSRIs. Okay, so here we go. There are people who are sick and who are depressed because they're sick. And, and these people are often prescribed SSRIs. So somebody decided to do a mood study. And they determined that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are no better than placebo. Uh, placebo, for your information, it means doing nothing. In depressed congestive heart failure patients. Now, congestive heart failure patients generally are older people, or these are not teenagers. So we now know that the effectiveness in teenagers is not good. We know in people of midlife who have sexual, who are sexually active, um, that these drugs worsen depression and get rid of your, their sexual drive. Now we're finding in congestive heart failure, you have all these negative things present, but there is no benefit. No benefit. These antidepressants do not uh, relieve depression any better than just doing nothing. A tincture of time, as they say. So this is San Diego, California. This is a local U.S. In what its investigators call the first large-scale randomized controlled trial to assess long-term effectiveness and safety of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors in patients with chronic heart failure. They used to call it congestive heart failure. Now they call it chronic heart failure. And this is a common thing we see in medicine is they rename something to give you the impression it's a new and different disease, or maybe they, they cured the old disease when actually it's the same old thing. So there were no significant differences in clinical outcomes between placebo and the SSRI. And this is the mortality, morbidity, and mood in depressed heart failure patients. More than 300 patients showed that 60% of those received SSRI and 61% of those receiving placebo had an unplanned hospitalization for any reason or all-cause death over the following 24 months. So hospitalization or death. Now, this is a problem. So we lump together hospitalization or death. For most people, hospitalization and death are two different things. So in other words, if they're going to take a drug and drop dead, that's one thing, a very bad thing. But if taking a drug might end them in the hospital, like, okay, I can handle that. And so by lumping hospitalization and death together, you don't measure if the SSRI had a higher death rate. This is uh, important. So uh, although patients receiving SSRI did have significant decrease in depressive scores after 12 weeks of treatment, the reduction was the same in the placebo group. So in other words, after 12 weeks of reporting, hey, I'm depressed, whether you give a person antidepressant or not, they're going to report that they feel better. At least, uh, yeah. So the findings were presented last week at a featured clinical research session at the American College of Cardiology. So the... Um, it does suggest, however, that optimal heart failure management resulting in improved signs and symptoms might possibly also be a means to ameliorate comorbid depression. In other words, if doctors did a better job of treating the congestive heart failure, maybe that's all that needs to be done and that antidepressants don't really need to be prescribed. And they go on to say that there's just no significant differences. And if there is no difference 
if there is no benefit, this is benefit, no benefit to prescribing the SSRI in terms of the target disease, depression, then one has to ask, why prescribe it? This is a question. This is a question. So why, why prescribe it? And then this is the icing on the cake. So now we've, we've established, just from looking at these various studies, we have established that SSRIs are ineffective. Ineffective. They do not assist with getting rid of depression any more than just doing nothing. And we've established, again, looking at these scientific studies, established that antidepressants worsen sexual dysfunction and depression. And this is uh, in the mid-range population, age uh, 15 to 64, let's say. And we know that they disrupt sleep in the elderly and may contribute to dementia. And they've been linked to violent crime in young people. So what does the Florida court do? The Florida court rules that the physician may be liable in the suicide of a patient who interrupted her antidepressant therapy. So let's take a look at this and see if we can't understand what's really going on here. Because this happened, by the way, I graduated from medical school in 1983. This happened, cases like this, again and again and again. Not necessarily in psychiatry. We're going to go through this case and I'll explain to you what the anomalies might be here. So Florida Supreme Court ruled on August 25th, pretty recent, that a physician could be sued for medical malpractice in the case of a patient's suicide. So a patient commits suicide, and we're going to now prosecute the physician for medical malpractice. And 55-year-old wife and mother hanged herself. And so her husband sued her family physician, who was treating her for a depression. All right. Now she started taking the antidepressant in 2005 but stopped in 2008. So she's been taking it for three years, according to court records. Now, this is Effexor, which is not an SSRI, but these are they're similar. No, when I say similar, they have similar side effects and similar issues. So the records say she called the doctor's office the day before she died and told his medical assistant that she had stopped taking the drug because she thought it was causing side effects like mm, poor sleep and mental strain and also causing her to cry easily and have upset stomach distress. And she said she didn't feel right and hadn't felt right since June or July. Okay. Now, after reading at the assistant's note, the doctor changed the patient's prescription from Effexor to a different antidepressant, uh, Lexapro, an SSRI, and did not schedule an appointment, but said the patient could pick up a sample of the drug and a prescription at his office. And the patient picked up the items that day, and hanged herself the following day. Her husband then sued the physician and his medical group, alleging the doctor had breached his duty and the suicide had resulted from that breach. Now, this is, this is an important uh, kind of malpractice thing. So malpractice says the doctor owes the patient a duty. What is that duty? The duty is to stick to the standard of care. That's the duty. The duty is not to do what's best for the patient. That is not the doctor's duty. The doctor's duty is to provide the standard of care. That is the duty. And then you have to establish the patient was harmed. This lady was definitely harmed. She killed herself. And then you have to prove that the harm resulted from the doctor's failure to adhere to the standard of care. Okay, so let's go through this and see what we can't sort out. The Supreme Court ruled the first district court in its decision 
in their final initial brief, outlined testimony from the hearing, and that they decide that Dr. Chirillo knew that patients who stopped taking effects or abruptly had an increased risk of suicide, and two, ultimately opined that stopping effexor was a contributing factor in the decedent's suicide. On this evidence, we approve the second district's finding that there's a genuine issue of material fact remaining as to the proximate cause, as the cause of her suicide. So what she had done is she uh, took it from 05 to 08, and then she stopped uh, the drug, saying that, hey, uh, since late June or July, uh, she hadn't felt right. So we don't really know here how long she'd stopped the drug. So chilling effect on care. So the doctors comment on this. Uh, so Dr. Sonso, director of the program of psychiatry, law and ethics at University of Michigan, says malpractice cases involving suicide are not new. That's true. There was a big problem with that in um, medicine when I was going to medical school in the 80s. Now, a common thing that would happen in the 80s, which was never explained to us, is patient would come in saying, oh, I'm depressed. Doctor would prescribe a drug. Patient would take the drug and commit suicide within 24 hours. And so what was never considered was that the drug caused the patient to commit suicide. And so this is something that's been going on for a while. Um, Because people with depression are often first seen in primary care, more training on managing these patients and assessing the risk is needed for physicians, as is continuing education and awareness of the circumstances of these kinds of lawsuits so they know what the responsibility is. The standard of care related to suicide is something that malpractice cases have been hinging on. So the standard of care. We know that primary care doctors are most frequently prescribing treatments for depression. In other words, most people who are treated by, for depression are treated by a primary care doctor. The American Psychiatric Association declined to comment on the ruling. So uh, Dr. Stimmel, executive director of the Psychology Association of Florida, told Medscape, There's a fine line between how you balance the standard of care with people's free will on an outpatient basis. So the ruling points out several things, including the vast majority of psychoactive medications at this point are being prescribed by non-mental health trained physicians. More people get antidepressants from their general practitioner than get it from their psychiatrist because we have a strong shortage of psychiatrists. Okay, so the solution they're saying is these prescriptions should be written by psychiatrists. In other words, people who receive antidepressants should be paying more money or insurance companies should be paying more money. It doesn't change whether she got the drug or not. Okay. Presumably, if this person had been in therapy, there would have been somebody monitoring what was going on with her mental state and also dealing with the issue that she stopped taking her medications. So in other words, if she was in therapy then there would be somebody monitoring her. She would be under supervision. So what we need to do here is put more patients under supervision, and every patient needs to have uh, a babysitter who can rat them out when they stop their medicines. She says doctors have a legitimate question in asking what can you do when a patient won't take medications. The problem was quantified in previous Medscape's news story that said that one in five patients prescribed antidepressants 
stop taking them without telling a doctor. I'm surprised it's only one in five. Ultimately, you cannot shove pills down someone's throat, Dr. Stimmel said. The thought of doctors being responsible for whether patients kill themselves or not, that's pretty chilling. Okay. So the problem here, according to this article, is the doctor did not stick to the standard of care. Well, what would be the standard of care? Since I practice medicine, I can tell you. Standard of care for this situation would be to have the patient come to the office and then you talk to the patient. You Then you write them a prescription either to refill what they're already on or to change the medicine, and then you send them home. So had this doctor stuck to the standard of care, this patient still would be dead. Now, since we know that the effector causes suicidal behavior when it's stopped abruptly, the first thing a doctor should do is not use Effexor. Uh didn't take me long. I used Effexor on three or four patients, and I thought, oh, uh-uh, this is not, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, the um, Effexor, it kind of like flattens the person's affect, makes them kind of, makes them not care, and they kind of just dissociate or separate themselves. This is just my observation. And so in my medical practice, I said, this is not healthy. This is not an improvement. This person needs to get over the depression and get back to living their lives. And so the solution, of course, is more of what caused her death. So what caused this lady's death, if you want to lay a medical cause to it, is that she was even started on this antidepressant in the first place. So what's the answer? The answer is to keep her on it. What's the answer? Um, put another, another step or layer in the police state supervisor to make sure she takes these deadly, uh, unpleasant medications. Uh, what's the solution? To stick to the standard of care, of course, to intimidate even more doctors, to put even more patients on these uh, deadly drugs. And so with this, so what the court is doing then is enforcing uh, a police state via medications here and supporting the enforcement of a therapy uh, regimen that is simply failed. And so how can the court step in and even suggest that an antidepressant of any kind would be desirable when we have this long list here of the antidepressants causing uh, suicidal thoughts, even suicidal actions, suicidal successes, um, that the antidepressants do not save lives. In other words, the big deal behind treating depression, as we were told in medical school, is people who are depressed could kill themselves. And so that's why we have to identify depression, and by golly, we've got to treat it. There's no evidence that um, these drugs reduce suicide. In fact, we have evidence that in, uh, certainly in young people, it doubles the suicide rate. And so this is what we have. We have a medical system that's doing a tremendous amount of harm, and then we have a legal system that's reinforcing that harm. Now, let's just say for the sake of discussion that this person, uh, her surviving spouse, receives a settlement. We'll call it $2 million, whatever. And then it's publicized, you know, um, doctor does not adhere to standard of care, and husband collects great reward. And this gives people the impression, false impression, that uh, the that should something go wrong, they'll be rewarded for it, that they will be compensated for it. When really, this husband, should he get compensated, 
his compensation will come as a result, basically, of a disciplinary action to compel doctors to adhere to a dangerous and deadly standard. So in other words, had this doctor adhered to the standard of care and his wife died, which uh, surely she would have, then um, he would have gotten nothing. And in most cases, doctors do adhere to the standard of care uh, in, when patients die. I would say certainly easily in 90 plus percent of the time. And so this is the way 880,000 Americans are killed each year by their medical care, is you have a legal system standing here intimidating doctors to engage in the standard of care and stick to it, when really the best thing for this lady would have been to never have started an antidepressant of any kind. So what is a person to do if they're depressed? Well, people who are depressed, this is the natural view. So, of course, we have to start this with a disclaimer, right? So this is not the practice of medicine. You know, if you want medicine, you have to go talk to your, your doctor. And if you take any uh, therapy that I've mentioned here tonight or do mention, then it's at your own risk. I accept absolutely no responsibility, legal or otherwise. Okay. Having said that, then, if someone is depressed, uh, the number one cause of depression, believe it or not, is constipation. Uh, second cause of depression is a diet of highly processed food. So literally just putting someone on uh, fresh, clean food and then even removing them from a poisonous environment. Maybe they're living under a a cloud of chemtrails. Maybe they're going to work in a chemical-filled environment and the list goes on and on in terms of chemical exposure. And for women who are most prone to um, depression, definitely get rid of all the makeup and all the personal care products, which are loaded with uh, dangerous chemicals. It makes it basically poison. So depression really is just a symptom of a person being poisoned. And so um, people can handle it by relieving their constipation, drinking a little water, uh, taking milk thistle, removing themselves from the poison. And usually that turns things around very nicely. Um, but the antidepressants, as you can see, are proven to be ineffective in terms of treating her depression, uh, or anyone's depression for that matter. And the list of side effects is just absolutely um, astounding. In fact, let me read them for you. I looked them up. And this is from uh, med.com. Remember, this is for antidepressants, um, agitation, um, anorexia, anxiety, binge eating disorder, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, bulimia, depression, depression, antidepressants cause depression, dissociative identity disorder, um, fibromyalgia, generalized anxiety disorder, hot flashes, Intermittent explosive disorder will cause violent behavior. And this is, this is just like routine. This is what antidepressants do. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome, major depressive disorder. So you have someone who just has a regular depression and give them antidepressants, they'll become a major depressive disorder. Neuralgia, obsessive compulsive disorder. Occipital neuralgia, that means a headache. Uh, panic disorder, persistent depressive disorder. In other words, it can make it depression, which would have been temporary. It can make it eternal. Post-traumatic stress disorder, postmenopausal symptoms, postpartum depression. It can cause postpartum depression. Premature ejaculation, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, schizoaffective disorder, severe mood dysregulation, social anxiety disorder, uh, transverse myelitis. It's, it's outrageous. So... Uh, this is a, a really bad, bad, bad deal. So what is a person to do? Answer is first, definitely refuse the prescription. 
Uh, and second, uh, you know, get yourself where you have some fresh air, fresh water, and clean food and regular bowel movements. That will definitely solve the problem. We have eight minutes left, and we have tons of questions here in the chat room. So let's take a look. Uh, hmm. ah, so, Dr. Daniel, many people use poisonous products to clean their homes, and this might contribute to depression. What do you recommend that people use to clean with? Okay, the first thing to clean with is just plain water. You would be shocked how effective just plain water is for cleaning things. Um, you can add apple cider vinegar. Yes, that's a good idea. However, um, I don't like it that much because it leaves, uh, does leave a residue, number one. And number two, depending on what you're cleaning, uh, apple cider vinegar can be damaging. But on a ceramic or tile floor, not a problem. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, I want to make sure I understand this. So a doctor can be charged with medical malpractice or lose your license and be fined, possibly jailed. No, 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 no. Malpractice means that all acts of killing patients are civil matters. The doctor cannot be jailed for acts of malpractice. Okay, that's the beauty of it. And the money does not come out of the doctor's pocket. It comes out of this fund that all doctors pay into. So when a doctor receives a malpractice judgment against him, that malpractice judgment in no way affects his financial stability. It's simply a matter of embarrassment, humiliation, and trauma of going through surgery, going through a legal process. And so the doctor, as long as the judgment, the size of the judgment is less than the limit, usually $1 million, placed on the doctor's policy, the doctor does not receive any um, personal liability at all. But, you know, that can be charged with medical malpractice for taking a patient off antidepressants due to its side effects if they commit suicide. But if the doctor continues to give antidepressants following the standard of care and the patient commits suicide, then they're in the clear and protected. Absolutely. And she lived from prosecution. Absolutely. That's correct. <laughs> this person says, oh, that's ridiculous. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dr. Dennis, I have acid reflux issues for a while. Why is it my symptoms like uh, dry heaving get much more severe when I have any lower abdominal contractions like right before I need to take a bowel movement? Because whenever, when, right before you have a bowel movement, your bowel movement, you're having increased intra-abdominal pressure. This pushes all of the acidic uh, liquid in your stomach up through your valve in your esophagus, which is not working. And so when that valve is not holding like it should, then that reflux causes uh, burning due to intra-abdominal pressure. You should notice you have the same problem whenever you maybe do a sit-up or cough or something like that. So what's the answer? The answer is to make your bowel movements more frequent and, and easier. So you should not be straining at your bowel movements because it's going to make uh, your reflux issues worse. But if you have more bowel, bowel movements and you move the fluid through your system, then your reflux is actually going to heal because it's not going to go backwards up your esophagus. It's just going to keep going forward because you're having more balance. So definitely a case for vitality capsules. Okay. Dr. <laughs> Dan, it's treating my hypertension, so no processed food, taking beet juice daily. You stated in the past that taking salt brings blood pressure down. What's the difference between salt and sodium? None. There is no difference. Um, so, 
why would the patient I was talking about experience his blood pressure totally going away? And the answer is because he added water and he added sodium to his diet, and that's what healed him. I wonder why so many antidepressant-taking patients swear on the benefits of antidepressants. Um, okay, so antidepressants definitely have a placebo rate of 30%. So 32% of all people taking antidepressants will feel that they have benefited. And yes, they will tell you it saved their life, and they couldn't survive without it. Um, it is what they want to believe, but it's all, it is the placebo effect. Again, the other issue is as long as you're taking the antidepressants, they have the support of family, friends, doctors, whatever. So it's a much more supportive uh, environment. Dr. Dan, do antidepressant pharmaceutical drugs affect or worsen sexual dysfunction and desire equally? Yes. In both men and women? Yes. It, it's, it's devastating for both. <laughs> okay. Dr. Dan, could you repeat the daily suggested doses of shilajit and teaspoon measurements? No. Rather than grams and milligrams? Um, you can't measure it in teaspoons, because teaspoons is too large a measure. So 200 milligrams would be approximately um, one-fiftieth of a teaspoon. So if that helps you, one-fiftieth of a teaspoon. Actually, what do you think of liposomal vitamin C? Um, I, I think it's, um, it's really an extra step for nothing. If you're going to take vitamin C, take it. If you're not, then not. So if you're not able to tolerate vitamin C, there are many other supplements that you can uh, use. All right, we have two minutes left. I would like to remind people that I am repeating my webinar. Not everyone was able to sign up for it because we didn't have enough seats. So we've upgraded our subscription and we have more seats. And the title of the webinar is How the Emergency Room Leads to Dangerous Therapies Without Your Consent. Yep, that's right. So go to healers. VitalityCapsules.com. So healers.vitalitycapsules.com. I talk about the three biggest hazards of the emergency room and, of course, how to avoid them. Yep. So definitely mosey on over there. Let me go take a look at my, uh, uh, here, see if we have any questions here. And do we have any questions? We have one question. Oh, here. We only have 60 seconds. We have to get that question out. Hello? Your question? Nope. Okay. All right. So antidepressants, definitely not a good deal. It's one you can definitely uh, pass on, and definitely I would advise you to not in any way aid, abet, or assist in the prescription of antidepressants. You know, don't fill prescriptions. Don't drive people to the pharmacy. Don't drive them to the psychiatrist, whatever. Uh, just bow out of that one. Uh, don't take them yourself or get involved with other people taking them. All right, that is it. As always, think happens, and we'll see you back next week. 